If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. If you're a first-time guest with us today, we're so thankful. I am so thankful that you're here today. And there is a Bible, if you don't have one, in the seat in front of you. That is our gift to you. Um, if you would, turn with us 1 John chapter 4. If you remember... Last week, we left off in this 14th verse of chapter 4, considering what the Apostle uh, has been teaching us. Uh, Really, the Apostle Peter, in his words about the transfiguration and the reality that the Word of God is better than even seeing Christ in that state of transfiguration, that we have a full record of who the Lord is. Um, that there can be no other representation of who Christ is apart from His Word. That everything that we think about Jesus must be filtered through what God's Word explicitly states about Him. And ultimately, we saw that the Bible tells us about Jesus that He is both God and man. And that He seemingly, in his humanity, was an ordinary man like every other man, but there was this glory that kept shining through, that that kept uh, creeping out, that, that, that the disciples, as they lived around him, noticed that he controls the wind and the waves, that he forgives sins, that he can give sight to the blind, and he can raise the dead, and, and, and things like this. Ultimately, the Bible reveals that Jesus is the only Son of God, truly God, and truly man. It's pretty clear. It's pretty elementary. Pretty basic. But you know, it wasn't more than 24 hours after that sermon that a national uh, pastor, so-called pastor, tweeted or twittered or twitted or whatever they are supposed to do on Twitter, This was Andy Stanley's statement. The Christian faith does not rise and fall on the accuracy of 66 ancient documents. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you see how subtly he juxtaposed the identity of Christ and the Bible? That those are two completely separate things. And what's sad, friends, is there are a lot of individuals will, that will hear that statement and they will say, well, yeah, that's, that's right. We want to be all about Jesus. The fact is, is we can never untangle Christ from His Word. He is the Word made flesh. And ultimately, what statements like this do is reveal men who are showing their ignorance of the Word of God to the entire world. And sadly, there will be people that follow Him. Now, the joy in my heart was that there was a whole pile of people that just went after Him. They counter-twitted, or whatever that is. They retweeted um, their responses to this silliness. And friends, we all make, we all make mistakes. I get that. But this is a consistent ethic from this man. And this is a guy that I've had individuals in our congregation come and I mean, he's great, they'll say. 
Friends, he is absolutely uh, an unrepentant false teacher. Because see, what people want to do when they're, when, when they're saying and juxtaposing Christ to His Word is, is they're saying, I have a better version of Christ. If, if you will listen to me and not the Bible, I can give you a clearer picture of the glorious one. But friends, I promise you on the authority of the Word of God that that just is not true. Remember, juxtapose these words that that Jesus is separated from the 66 uh, books of the Bible with the words that we heard from 2 Peter. I'll read them to you again and, and see if you can discern the utter error of this kind of thinking. 2 Peter chapter 1. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the more prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which we will do well, you will do well well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But when men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, it is no joke to have an individual stand in the pulpit and try to separate Christ from His Word. Because ultimately what those individuals are doing is they are ripping the true Christ away from their people. And that will receive, I believe, at the judgment, the greatest penalty. Now what do we have this morning? We have again in the 14th verse of chapter 4 of John's first letter, a guard against such foolishness. We have a gift that will keep us tied to the reality of who Christ is and what He has done. And I believe that verse 14 is a verse that if we could understand it, we would begin to relate with uh, with the disciples who went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember what they said when Jesus was being transfigured in Matthew chapter 17, verse 4. Let us make... Three tabernacles, one for three, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let us just camp here and let us just gaze upon your glory, Lord. But what they were saying ultimately is, Jesus, your glory and, and beholding your glory is so much better than what is at the base of this mountain. Getting to know you in the fullness of who you are in all of your glory and seeing your glory shine through your humanity, that is better than going back to the sin-cursed world that is going to seek to twist your identity. There are all kinds of problems. In fact, this world lies in the power of the evil one and we don't want to go back there. We just want to stay up here and behold your glory. Friends, I hope that that is your heart to a certain extent 
as well. Now we know ultimately that Christ had ministry to do and they left the mountaintop and we have ministry to do and we have to leave and walk away in some sense week in and week out from these truths. But I want to remind you again of the glorious weight of who Christ is and warn you that time and time and time again there will be those who seek to twist the teaching of who Jesus is in just small degrees but ultimately, even small degrees in obscuring the glory of God and attempting to do that, are high crimes. Again, John writes in the context of a fallen world that seeks to rob us, we need to be reminded, of our true joy, of lasting joy, that is found only in fellowship with the Father through the Son in the Spirit. What John is dealing with here is that we would be assured of the truth of our identity in Christ, that we would have settled in our minds who Jesus is, what He came to do, what the Spirit is doing even yet, and how we are to live in Christ as one body. Because when we have Christ in mind, and we understand His ministry, and we understand the working of the Spirit in each one of us who have been born anew by His work and His work alone, then our joy cannot be ripped away. It cannot be taken from us. But when we begin to doubt, when we begin to question the person and the work of Christ in proportion, there will be a loss of joy. What John is teaching us, remind you, is that we have no ultimate assurance, no ultimate joy in ourselves. Could you imagine a world that it, it, the, how the world would change if we could merely understand that one truth universally? That humanity has no ultimate seat of joy in and of himself apart from the living God. Our grounds for assurance of comfort in the faith is knowing the person and the work of Christ. And in this one verse, verse 14, we have a summary of both the person and the work. So I would ask that you give it attention as you rise to your feet this morning, doing honor to the reading of God's Word as we begin again in verse 7 of chapter 4. John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation or wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we, have been, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Let me read that again. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior 
of the world. May God be praised forever. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence today thankful that you sent your only begotten Son into the world to be a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice for the weighty sins that we have committed against your holy decrees. Father, I pray this morning that you would write this eternal truth of who Christ is upon all of our hearts that we would not be deceived. You tell us so often in your word that There are those who will seek to distort truth. The greatest truths are those truths about Christ and about the Spirit and about who you are in your person and in your work. And so, Father, this morning we come through the blood of Christ asking that you would impress upon our hearts and minds an unshakable confidence in the work and in the person of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. Again, the whole gospel is wrapped up in this one verse. This is the only time that this expression is used in this letter, in this exact uh, phrase, Savior of the world. Now, verse 2 of chapter 2 really teaches the same thing. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And we've talked about the reality that that doesn't mean that Jesus is going to save everyone. And it really doesn't even teach that He died for everyone. What it teaches is that there is no other propitiator than Jesus Christ. There is no other sacrifice that is acceptable in the sight of God than the shedding of the blood of His own Son. He is the only propitiator through which sinners can find redemption. And if you're here this morning without Christ, we make no um, apology in this church for the reality that it is our desire that you would run from religion and from your own sin and from your own good works and that you would cling to Christ. And by the power of the Spirit of God, that you would flee from this life and the things that so easily ensnare you, and that you would cling to this one available propitiator and to Him alone. So the term is not necessarily foreign to the letter, but the exact phrase is exclusively used here the Sotor, the Savior of the world. It's a word that has been used throughout history in the Greek language to be applied to political leaders, to Caesar, to emperors, to soldiers and warriors. It's a term that has been used of the philosopher. It was used of Epicurus. His followers would call him Savior. John seemingly uses this phrase sparingly when he comes to deal with the person and work of Christ, though he is clear that this is the identity of Jesus. Paul, on the other hand, was very fond of using this word. He used it all the time. Last week, we looked at the person of Christ, the reality, again, that Jesus is both God and man. And we considered, again, that the apostolic witness, that is the writing of the Bible, of the prophets and the apostles, is the only true, accurate verification of who Jesus is in His person 
and work. So having dealt with the reality of His personhood in the first part of this, in verse 14, as He says, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son, that Jesus is both God and man. Having dealt with it, we now turn to look at His work, which is encapsulated in these words, to be the Savior of the world. And I simply want us to walk away today with an understanding of what is meant by Savior of the world. Now some of you might say that's a really obvious uh, phrase. That's a really obvious thing to get your arms around. Friends, I would agree with you, except 2,000 years of church history prove that we don't understand this phrase apart from the working of the Spirit to open our eyes to what it really means. In fact, all too often, humans profane this phrase and turn Jesus' saving work into something other than what is explicitly meant in the Gospel. See, I'm convinced that one of the greatest dangers in our day is that we are holding on to words, but we are letting go of meanings. That we are holding on to orthodox phrases, but we are allowing the world and liberal ideology to pervert or to twist what those words mean. And what is sad is that through generational transfer, if we're not careful, that just becomes the norm and and the church is so... Uh, immersed in wrong understanding and wrong defining of words that she walks away not with just a distortion of the Gospel, but she walks away with something that's not the Gospel at all. So we need to keep the terms and the Gospel intact. We need to have the right understanding to the words that we use. There are people, friends, all the time that will say, Christ is my Savior. Christ is Lord. Christ is God. And they can give you the understanding of His divinity that He is both God and man. But the second that you ask them, now what does that mean that He is Savior? They will walk into absolute false definitions. So what does it not mean? And, and I want to be careful as I lean into the negative of this, of what Savior does not mean. I want you to understand that anytime we talk about Christ, He is the fullness of life. And, and so in certain ways, even these things that I'm going to say in the negative can be true of Him, but it's dangerous to lead with these things. One, being our Savior does not mean that He is our Helper. Someone just to boost us up a little bit. Someone who came to do work and He merely is just going to help us along a little bit. He is merely just going to push us forward. He's just going to rah-rah us into something better. He is not merely a helper. He also, and this is one that I think is, is used often to distort what it means, uh, His being the Savior of the world. He's not just a teacher. He's not one who just helps us to understand things the way that we ought to. Now, He has taught wonderful things all throughout the Gospel and throughout His Word, and He is the teacher, but that's not the understanding of this word Savior of the world. It doesn't mean that He just came to give a set of teaching. 
also does not mean that he's just merely an example. Uh, He's not just one who we pattern our lives after, that we imitate. Now, we are called to be imitators of Christ, but friends, we can't do that in the ultimate sense, in our own strength. So He's not merely, we can't reduce His being our Savior down to being our helper, our teacher, or our example. Again, you talk to someone and say, is Jesus the Lord of your life and is He your Savior? And they're not going to give you the syllabus outline of He is my helper, He is my teacher, He is my example. But often the responses that you will hear is those things are mixed in in a way that they come to the forefront of really being the thrust of His identity. And in this letter, in chapter 14 excuse me, chapter 4, verse 14, that is not what is being taught. What, what is not being taught here, he is not just merely a helper, a teacher, or an example. People come and they speak of Christ and say He saves us, from, uh, it saves us by preaching the Sermon on the Mount and by describing the kind of life that we should live. He leaves us this great example. He helps us along the way a little bit. He shows us the way and then He gives us... Uh, there's this <clears throat> theological phrase that He gives us this prevenient grace, this, this help to just nudge us in the right direction, but then we really have to do the work. And you see, the problem is when we leave Jesus in thinking about His being the Savior of the world in terms of merely helper-teacher example... What that ultimately leaves us in the position of is that we have to save ourselves. And Jesus is merely the one that comes alongside to assist us in that endeavor. And what has happened when we bought into Jesus as Savior of the world, being merely our teacher, our helper, and our example, is that we have rejected the Bible's teaching altogether. It's not the biblical Jesus. It's not what He has come to accomplish. He is no mere helper, teacher, example. He is the Savior of the world. Allow that phrase to just be seared into your mind this morning that Jesus is the Savior of the world, of the cosmos. He's not merely one who comes alongside. You remember when Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 of Christ's victory over sin and death and victory over the penalty of our sin. He says, By gr- but, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Now this is speaking particularly of the distribution of gifts among the people of God. But it has a very clear weight to it, and that is that grace comes as a gift of God alone. And that is both in salvation and in our giftings individually as members of the body of Christ. He does not attempt to give us grace. He gives it to us once for all. He gives us salvation. He's not merely our helper. He is our Savior. You see, there's this great danger in the church by trying to live Christ in our own strength. By trying to live with Christ as merely a helper-teacher example. 
because ultimately it obscures who Jesus really is in the fullness of His person. And one of the ways that I think that we fail to rightly see Jesus in this way is it manifests a problem in the church that I see all the time is that we then when we don't see Jesus for who He really is as the Savior of the world, both God and man, fully human, fully divine, uh, when we don't see Him clearly in that way, we begin to not relate to the church in a historical well. And what I'm talking about is that we don't have any room for a real relationship of heroes to heroes of the faith. I, I, I think about people that have been true helpers in my own walk in the historical sense. People like Matthew Henry, who's a great commentator, or Thomas Scott, who did a great job of writing uh, cross-reference material, or John Newton. I don't know, have any of you ever been helped by John Newton and his writing of Amazing Grace? Has that him ever been a help to you? It's been a help to me often. I can just hum that all throughout the day and be encouraged by the reality that these heroes of the faith really have helped me. Or wonderful teachers of the church like John Calvin or C.S. Lewis or William Perkins, Richard Sibbs, John Owen. John Calvin, one of the wonderful things about that man, so much has been written and uh, to malign him. Uh, and, and I don't hold him forward as the Savior today, but I do help hold him forward as a good teacher. Um, and one of the things that I think is wonderful about him is not only what he taught, but the way in which he taught it. There's an individual in church history by the name of Servetus, and any time that Calvin is mentioned, immediately people get angry and they say, well, Calvin ultimately helped to kill Servetus. And when they do that kind of stuff, all that they really are showing is that they're ignorant about biblical history, or excuse me, uh, church history, because... Calvin, in and of himself, when he found out that Servetus... Now, remember, this is in the time where if the Catholic Church disagreed with you, they didn't just excommunicate you, they burned you at the stake. And Servetus already had a warrant out for his arrest to be burned at the stake by the Catholic Church. And then he came to Geneva and he created problems. After he left, Calvin left Geneva and went out to find Servetus. And what he said to, to, his, to the individuals in the church at the time was, brothers, I'm going out because I want to bring this man to Christ. He taught things, but it wasn't just merely in an adversarial manner. Now, what ended up happening is when he met with Servetus, Servetus re refused to move away from his false teaching, and Calvin actually warned him and said, I want you to understand, if you come back to Geneva, the, 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 the city council is probably going to have you put to death, so don't come back. Allow us to just work through this through correspondence. Don't imperil your life. Here's a teacher that he loves the truth and he wants to. He, he had these. Uh, he had this way about him. He, it was lucid brevity was his method. He wanted to stick close to the text, and it's why, even though there are so much, so many people that malign him and that that say false things about him, and he's worthy of critique. But, but, but ultimately, what we find is that 500 years after his death, do you know that his commentary is still the most widely circulated in the church today? And it's because he was given a gift to teach well. You think about John Owen and his writing of the treatise 
that's huge. The death of death and the death of Christ, which ultimately defends a limited atonement view of the work of Christ. And, and the reason that I know that that's clear and good teaching is because, you know, it was written hundreds of years ago and no one to date has written any response to that teaching, to, to what he explained in the uh, death of death, in the death of Christ. So not only do we have helpers in the church, we have teachers. God said he would give them to the church, and he has. Um, but we also have examples. We have those kind of heroes that come into particular moments of church history that they just play the part of the man. And I use that phrase because Latimer's one of those individuals that as he's burning, uh, getting ready to be burnt for the faith next to Ridley, he turns to him and he says, Ridley, play the part of the man. Because today we are going to light in England a candle which will not be put out. And Latimer's also the guy who, when it was announced that the king was coming to hear him preach, and they said, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you preach. The king is coming. And Latimer's response was, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you don't preach. The king of kings is here. Oh, what a gift for men like that. Or Luther, who stood at the Diet of Worms and he, he could have been killed for, for standing up for justification by faith alone. And I'm thankful for that doctrine this morning. It may put you to sleep, but it's better than caffeine to me. Because the reality is, without that doctrine, I'd be shackled under a bunch of popes and priests and crap that will never say. And he stood in the face of the emperor of Charles and he said, I can't recant these things unless I am convinced by evident reason or sacred scripture. I can't take those things away. Talk about a hero of the faith. What a gift to the church. What an encouragement. Or we think about men like Robert Murray McShane who died when he was 29 years old having taken the gospel to so many different individuals. And as he is dying as a 29-year-old of typhus that he had contracted doing his work of pastoral ministry, walking into the homes of people who were sick, knowing that it could cause risk to his own health. And as he's dying, he says, God has given me a message in a horse. And the illustration is that his body is the horse. He said, God has given me a message in a horse. I've killed the horse. And he died and left a great testimony and legacy of being faithful even from a young age. Or Spurgeon, who wrote copious amounts of notes over the exposition of the Word of God, and, and, and God used him greatly there. Why am I saying all of this? Because immediately when I start talking about these men, Calvin and John Knox and, and Zwingli and Latimer and all of these individuals, somebody in the church in our generation is going to say, well, you're just serving idols. No, you know what I really think the problem is? And men who are in this room and ladies who have young children, we have not given the right heroes to our kids. There are individuals who laid down their life for Jesus, lived out the true calling of Romans chapter 12. And we obscure them because we don't understand that it's okay to have heroes. And why? Because the reality is it's not that we've exalted Jesus too much. It's that we've brought Him low and merely made Him the helper, the teacher, the example. And I promise you, friend, then there is no room in the church for those heroes. 
But when we exalt Christ as the Savior of the world, as the one who has come to pay our ransom, and He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, then we can come to an understanding that it is by by the grace of God that we are given giftings. And there are heroes in the church. And there are heroes of the faith. And our posterity should understand who they are because it gives a great example of what it actually means to live the Christian life. We have dozens, we we have millions of young people today that believe, sorry, I am totally off key here, but that believe the Christian faith is buying a t-shirt, going to a conference, and putting a bumper sticker on their car. That is not the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The Gospel is something that is worthy of all of our lives. And it's only worthy of all of our lives when we understand what John really means here when he says that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And he means that no other man could fix the problem that you and I have. The definite article problem that we have is that we are separated from God because of our sin. Because Adam's sin rebelled against God, all of humanity is separated from a holy triune God. And God in His kindness, in light of this separation, what is miraculous about the Bible is that it exists beyond Genesis chapter 3. That God didn't just say, I'm done with you. But immediately when He pronounces judgment, because He is holy, He then goes on to give promises of provision of how He's going to redeem a particular people for His glory. And He says in Leviticus chapter 18, You shall keep My statutes and My judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. And what is God doing there? He's telling the nation of Israel, if you want to live, abide by my law. And what he's not doing is saying you can live by the law. He's giving the law to help them understand that apart from grace, they'll all die. That's what we're taught in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That describes the world as a result of trying to save herself in her own efforts in keeping the law and the commandments of God. We have all failed. It's a complete failure. That There is nothing that we can do to redeem ourselves. We have to have a Savior who is apart from us. I can't be saved by following uh, just a mere teacher or being given a helper or given an example. I need someone who can ransom me from my sins. So we need to understand that believing that Jesus is merely a teacher, a helper, or an example robs Him of His glory and robs us of the ability to see the body of Christ and all of her giftings well. So Savior of the world means something. It means something glorious. Christ is the Savior as a result of something that He has done. We must get out of our mind once forever the idea that we merely need to receive encouragement from Him. That we merely need a moral example. 
We need to understand that salvation in the New Testament vision of the word means something that is worked entirely by God in God for his own glory and that being the savior of the world is not something that we can take any part in at all salvation is a free gift of grace alone And so you know what that leaves us in the position of? If you're here today and you're hearing, I can't save myself through doing something right. God is the only one that can can save. I can't even have the least bit of work in that redemption. He is the one that's planned it. He's the one that's provisioned it. He's the one that's bringing it to completion. That may leave you in a position where you feel like, well, what am I supposed to do? Receive the gift. That is all you can do, is receive what Christ has done on your behalf. And you will only do that if the Spirit works in you. We're ultimately taught the reality of the complete work of Christ and and of, of Christ being the Savior of the world in one word that He speaks there on the cross and it's translated into the English phrase often it is finished. Do you remember as Jesus hung there on the cross reading in the Bible that He said it is finished. And what He is saying is that The Father has sent me into the world and He's given me a particular task to do. He's given me work to do. He has called me to bear this cup, the wrath against the sins of many. And when He says it is finished, He is proclaiming to every generation that would follow that He accomplished what the Father sent Him to do. What Jesus says, it is finished, really says, it gives a stamp of approval to being the Savior of the world. He's saying, I have actually accomplished the salvation that I was sent to accomplish. We do not save ourselves, but we have rather, as John says here, seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. What's interesting is you'll find all throughout the book of Acts, and you'll find throughout church history that when the church is strong, this is the gospel that she is proclaiming. Not a gospel of works. Not a gospel of show up and let's build a social club and have a bunch of activities for the kids and do a bunch of side ministries and all of those things. No, let's show up and hear the reality of what our Savior has done. When the church flourishes, it flourishes because the gospel is declared not as a potential gospel, but as a finished work. Jesus is the settled Savior of the world, the propitiator for our sin. So the question that I know you're just digging at right now is how, how did the Lord Jesus Christ save us? We've already seen that He is the Son of God, that He is the One who has come, who was sent into the world, that He's not just merely an ordinary man who was born, but He is pre-existent and He was sent into the world by His heavenly Father according to the plan of redemption that was, that was agreed upon before the foundation of the world, before we did anything good or evil. That Christ came into this world and He came to save. But the question is, how does He save? Well, first... 
we are told that He saves by His perfect work of obedience. Again, God gave His law so that we would understand that we can't keep it. God gave His law so that we would look around and go, well, in accordance with the law, we have a 100% failure rate. And that's a problem. And we are separated from a holy God. And, and, and the, the Word makes it plain that there are no loopholes. That, that God will vindicate His Word. That everything He says will be accomplished. And that if He is, if he is dishonored in His statutes and His laws, if, if we've sinned against Him, He will repay that. And so the first thing that Jesus, in the positive sense, we need to understand about His being our Savior is that He lived 100% in accordance with the Word of God. He lived a perfect, holy life in our place. His active obedience, His, 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 uh, His, His, Perfect, sinless life is a gift to you and I. That is part of what it means that He is our Savior. It's not that the Gospel says you must do this and this and this. It's that Jesus has done it all. Jesus is the one who has completed every work of the law. Romans chapter 6 then, the second reason, the wages of sin is death. And the second thing that Christ has to do is to deal with the problem of our guilt, of the reality that we can't come to God because we are sinful. We are not like Him. We are not holy. And so we are faced with the reality of what took place on Calvary's hill. That ultimately, Christ had to shed His blood on our account. We look back and we, as we heard the verses read this morning by Dion in Leviticus, chap, uh, Leviticus chapter 7, if I remember correctly, um, there is the prescription of dealing with sin. There must be a blood sacrifice. Now in our generation, our modern sensibilities are really rattled by this whole sacrificial system where animals are sacrificed for the sins of men. This vicarious blood offering system. There are many individuals in the church today who say we need to stop paying attention to that. That we, we need to move beyond that. That God wants us to get over all of what He's written in the Old Testament there. But beloved, if we really understand the Word of God, if we really understand who Jesus is, everything in the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system dealing with blood offering just points uh, its way towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, there is no getting around in the New Testament the reality that we still need a blood atonement. We still need the shedding of blood. And without the shedding of blood, the Bible tells us there is no remission of sin. The law of God demands a punishment. And the, the right punishment for sins against a holy God is death every single time. And so we find that Jesus set His face towards Calvary to shed His blood, to give of Himself as a sacrifice, to bear the wrath of God on the cross, to atone for our sin. 
Friends, one of the joys that we have, and I want you to have the right picture when we come in here week in and week out and we have this time of confession. We are not coming to, in some form or fashion, receive forgiveness the way that we do in um, being born again every single week. What we are doing when we come to confess our sins is we are pleading the blood of Christ and the grace of God over our sin afresh and anew. That Jesus is the once and done sacrifice. And when we gather here, we are able to lay all of our sin before Him knowing that all of it is covered by the blood. Knowing that we have been given forgiveness through the works of Christ once and for all. And the writer of Hebrews writes kind of in this direction. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come... Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all the holy places, not by means of blood and of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled, by the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience conscious from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus in the cross, in His work, ultimately proves Himself not only to be the sacrifice then, but He also proves Himself to be the priest. So, what does it mean that He's our Savior? It means, one, He lived perfectly in our place. It means, two, that He bore the penalty for our sin. And it means, thirdly, that He is the great High Priest. He is the one who is the mediator between God and man. And He didn't merely enter the tabernacle for a time, but He entered the holy places and is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you and I. And, and that's what, consequently, we learn as we we move on into the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 7, we read, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to, him, to God through Him, since he, has, since he always lives to make intercession for us. And we've seen this truth of, of Christ being our mediator or our advocate in verse 1 of chapter 2 of what John has written. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Friends, Jesus is our Savior this morning because He lived perfectly in our place. And the little checklist that we have of trying to, to live up to God's standard in our own strength, we can set that aside. Because Jesus has accomplished the work of the law. It is finished. He is the one who has fulfilled every iota of righteousness. And all we can do is receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. So He positively has lived the life that we couldn't live. Secondly, He atoned for our sin. He paid the penalty for all of our sin. And He is the final sacrifice. But He also is our priest, our advocate, the one at the right hand of God this morning pleading His very blood on our account. Every time that Satan stands to accuse us of what we are guilty of. 
being sinful and frail in our human frame, Jesus says, but those people belong to me and I have shed my blood for the remission of their sin. Is that not an encouragement to you this morning? Is that not a gift of kindness of God? And here's the reality. I I, I know I've said this to you before, but it's so worth uh, repeating. God the Father and God the Son are not juxtaposed in their work of redemption. It's not as though Jesus is trying to persuade an unwilling Father to look upon us and to forgive us and to have mercy upon us. For For John has told us here, That the Father is the one who sent the Son. These things that Jesus has done, living the perfect righteous life in our place, being the propitiation, our wrath-bearing sacrifice, and being our mediator were planned before the very beginning of time. The Pactus Salutum. And and, and this is all the will of the Father. And and the Father willingly receives the work, the redemption uh, of Christ our Savior. And the glorious thing is this, as we've already been taught. Verse 13. But this we know, that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. It's not only the reality. Now friends, it would be, it, it would be glorious enough if the Gospel that we get to proclaim is that Jesus is the Savior of the world, not in the mere sense of being teacher, helper, example, but in being the righteous life uh, and, and then being the propitiation and then being the, the, um, the priest, the advocate on our behalf. But the reality is that we have a greater truth and that's not only these objective truths about who Jesus is, but also the subjective reality that by His Spirit He is working these things out individually in our lives. It's not just that we declare these grand works of Christ as being completed and finished and He is the only one who has done them and that's the end of it. That is, in a sense, the end of it. But He goes on to say He's given us His own Spirit and He's working out this Gospel in our own hearts and lives until the day of redemption. He is doing this work thoroughly by His Spirit. He is daily saving souls and conforming men and women, boys and girls, into the image of Christ. And one day, that work will be utterly completed. He kept the law. He offered His blood. He is the mediator that pleads that blood right now. And He does all of this, um, applying all of this into our lives by the power of the Spirit. But there will be a day And I long for this day when Jesus will come for His bride and He will bring us all the way to glory. It's what Paul spoke of in Philippians chapter 3 when he said, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. See, we have to look at these great aspects of the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and realize that it is His work that He has done and it is His work that He is doing and it is His work that He will bring to completion. Ultimately, what we see 
if we want to reduce this down and what we've been saved from, if He is the Savior and that salvation comes through His perfect life, through His sacrifice, and through His priestly work, we understand then rightly that what we are saved from is the penalty, the power, and the pollution of sin. That each one of us were worthy of the wrath of God, and yet Jesus, if we are in Christ this morning, has bore that wrath on our, our behalf. And not only has Jesus saved us from the penalty of sin, He has also now set us free that we are able to live in righteousness in a way that is well-pleasing to our Father. And friends, one day, one day, He will save us utterly from the pollution of sin. I can't wait to open my eyes in glory and not struggle with my own attitude. Not struggle with my own frustration. Not struggle with all of the besetting sins that as human beings we wrestle with. One day, because He has set me free from the penalty and the power, I know He will complete that work and I will be holy as He is holy. This is a work that only Christ could do. You see, here's the reality, friends. The reason why the world wants to make the word Savior so low and merely teaching and helping and being an example is because then people other than Jesus can fill the role. And that's been the reality all throughout history. The reason these other things, being a teacher and helper and example, don't work is we've had those people all throughout the, the, the world. And, and when they're, like I said, in gifted with the grace of God inside the body of Christ, they truly are gifts. But if we want to understand Jesus and the fullness of His saving work, we have to see that the saving work is work that He alone could accomplish. And so the only question that we have left is, have we received this salvation? Have we turned from our sin and our own righteousness and our own goodness, and placed our faith in Christ and Christ alone. And if that is the case, we can be sure it's only because the Spirit of God is at work within us. Friends, it's wonderful to hear testimonies in this church of how God has redeemed you. I never get tired of hearing about how God is applying the work of redemption even today. So thankful for that. And I pray that we wouldn't muddle the Gospel in our own generation, by teaching a Christ who's merely a, a teacher of moralism or an example of good works or one that just helps us along, I pray that we always speak to one another in a way that it, it's clear that we understand that Jesus has set us free from both the penalty, the power, and one day, the pollution of sin. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning thanking You for this work that only Christ could do. We thank You that You sent Your Son, the, the pre-incarnate Christ, into the world, into a manger, that You would lay low the lies of Satan with the birth of a child as glory in and of itself. And Father, that He would carry out the positive works of redemption and completely obeying Your law. And Father, that You would allow Him to be a sin sacrifice on behalf of people 
such as those who are gathered here today is altogether astounding. And so, Father, today we come giving You worship and thanks for our salvation. We come asking if there's one who's gathered here with us who doesn't truly know You, who has not been converted uh, by the work of Your Spirit, that You would do that miraculous work in a way that You would receive glory for it. And Father, we pray that You would keep before our minds always that You are our Savior in the fullest redemptive sense and that we would not take away from that uh, by giving in to the thoughts of men. Father, we thank You 